Hello, listeners. This is Hilary Trudell, and you're listening to The Yarn Podcast. Thanks for joining us. The Yarn uses the power of story to amplify voices, build understanding, and create space for human connection. We currently operate out of Little Rock, Arkansas, and all the stories you're about to hear were recorded live. Our shows are theme-based and center on topics that come straight from our community. Today, we're featuring stories from our recent live show, True Love Stories. The show was performed live at South on Main on February 19th in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. This will be the second of a three-part series. Our first storyteller in the second part of this series is Mike Silverman. Mike is originally from California, but has made Little Rock his home for the past three years with his wife, Catherine. He's a member of the yarn team, thank you Mike, and he can also be found in his free time at the Arkansas Repertory Theater, volunteering or learning. Here he is from the yarn stage. I just want to. Hello. So the first few pages of the Mike and Catherine love story are tumultuous at best. However, Spoiler alert, in our wedding vows, we both talked about how we met was very serendipitous. We met the Thursday before Halloween in 2012. I was working at a bar, I was a bouncer, she was a patron, Uh, she was celebrating her friend's 30th birthday, whom a psychic, of all people, encouraged her to do. Um, A friend of hers took her out to see the psychic, and she was like, Uh, just out of a bad relationship, so that's why her friend was treating her for this, to this, and was like, let's let's go do this. And the psychic said, you could think about this ex, it could work out, who knows, but you should go out and meet new people. I think you might meet somebody special, possibly even your soulmate. So she described this guy, tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, Capricorn. But the only person Catherine knew at that point who matched that description was her brother. So so we met at the bar I was working at, and I was working at the patio, and uh, Catherine and I at that point, we were social smokers. And I knew a lot of people out there who were smoking, and one of them was smoking a clove cigarette. And I was like, I haven't smelled one of those since I was in high school. I mean, since I was 18. And he goes, oh, do you want one? And I said, sure. I had no intention of smoking it, but I threw it behind my ear. However long later, this beautiful, curly red-haired woman comes out in what I would learn is her kind of staple uniform, a V-cut shirt, and she wore these red, thick-rimmed glasses that she doesn't need. (laughs) Uh, And so we got to talking, and she says, hey, do you have a cigarette? And I said, well, actually, I do. And I offered it to her, and she smoked it and hated it, and I don't blame her for that. And, but we got to talking. She saw I was friendly, so every once in a while, she would come out and confide in me that all the guys that she was with for this birthday party, none of them were being gentlemanly and offering to buy her drinks, except for the birthday boy, and that's just wrong on a lot of fronts. Um, But it was a Thursday night, so we had these little drink tokens that would work Thursdays and Sundays that would give people free drinks. So 
I decided to be gentlemanly, and she was very attractive. So I bought her drinks for the rest of the night, essentially. And we, she would come out, and we would talk, and we bonded, and we talked, uh, we really bonded over her love of sandwiches, because I really love sandwiches, too. And I just learned about this place down in Hollywood, and I really was like, we should go do that. And she was like, maybe. So this goes on for the whole evening, and I work up the courage to, you know, at the, at the end of the night say, hey, maybe we should get together sometime. And she was really reluctant. But fortunately for me, her friend whose birthday she was there for walks out at that exact moment and just yells, give him your number. <laughs> and so she did, which I was really happy about. Um, and all I did that night was I texted her, it was really great to meet you, I hope you had a good time. We did end up texting a little bit back and forth the next day, and I said, hey, you know, I work all weekend, I'm free on Monday, do you want to hang out? And she was like, I'll probably be busy, but I'll let you know. <laughs> so Monday came around, and I wasn't expecting to ever hear from this woman ever again. Uh, and 8.30, I was at home doing really nothing, and I get a text message, uh, so how about that drink? So we went out on our first date. I call it our first date, I don't know if she would. Um, and we played pool and we got drinks and we just talked and we had a really good time and I thought, hey, maybe I'll get to see this girl again. But I don't hear from her for several days through Halloween. It starts to kind of eat at me. Go out to drinks with a friend of mine and he's like, don't worry about it. If it's meant to be, she'll come. And okay, so I was on my drive home from that and she texts me and she says, hey, I've been awake for 36 hours. I can't sleep. Do you want to hang out? <laughs> and how could I say no to an offer that good? <laughs> so, so I went and picked her up and we actually, we drove a uh, CPH or PCH, Pacific Coast Highway, which was really romantic actually even though she really didn't want it to be. And when we get, I get her home and we hang out for a while, she invites me in, we watch a movie, we talk a lot. And when I'm leaving, I'm like, I think this is a good opportunity. I think the kiss is gonna happen. So she had to let me out of her garage. And so as I was leaving, I leaned in to take, to, you know, the kiss. And apparently she thought it was a good idea too because she leaned over for the kiss and then at the last second, she realized, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. And she turned her cheek to me. And so it, it looked something like this. And I didn't kiss her cheek. And we sat there for a really awkward, like, three or four seconds. And in true Catherine fashion, she pulls away and goes, is something the matter? Defeatedly, I say, no. And she gets out and says, well, have a good evening. And that was the end of the night. So hearing this story, all of my friends, one in particular, were like, dude, you really shouldn't hang out with her anymore. <laughs> but I did. Uh, for the next few weeks, we saw each other pretty much every day. And we had wonderful conversations, open and honest, about loves in the past, where we want our lives to go more and more I heard, the more and more compatible it felt. But 
every night she would, we would have an, a small argument about her saying, you know, I don't think we should hang out anymore. I guess she wasn't as ready for anything as I obviously was. Um, but like clockwork, every single day the next day, she would text me at some point and say, so do you want to come over tonight? And this went on for a few weeks. Um, nothing happened, if you were wondering. It was just a lot of talking, really. And, uh, but it was coming up on Thanksgiving, and I wanted to bring something to my family, and so she bragged about this chocolate bourbon pecan pie that she knows how to make. It's absolutely breathtaking. And I said, well, let's make two. You can take one to your Friendsgiving. I'll take one to my family's Thanksgiving. It'll be great. She agrees. And I show up, and we hang out. We get baking, and we have a really great time. But the key word here is that it was a chocolate bourbon pecan pie. So the drinks were flowing the whole night. And um, to make a long story short, I got my first kiss with her. And it was wonderful. We were essentially together after that. We consider 11, uh, November 20th, our date anniversary, And, um, but to, to end the story on a really positive note, if you didn't already tell from the spoiler alert, she and I have been married and I got to tell my friend Zach that I'm really glad I didn't take his advice as he stood there to be a groomsman at my wedding. So, thank you. Our next storyteller is Molly Reed. Molly explores how a series of questions can define your life and what the real answer to why is. Here she is from the yarn stage. My mother has always asked the questions. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, they always have a capital Q and they are always said with the injured, fearful air of somebody who has spent a really long time thinking about all of the possible answers. When I was 12, I smashed my finger between my home's old school glass water jug and its ceramic stand. Because I had lived a sheltered life that had known no pain, I passed out. <laughs> I woke to my mother shaking me anxiously, and the first thing she asked me was, Molly? Are you anorexic? <laughs> I told her no, and she made me eat six peanut butter crackers in front of her just to make sure. <laughs> when I was 14, my mother shook me awake from a dead sleep. Admittedly, it was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That was my bad. And she demanded to know, Molly, are you depressed? I assured her blearily and with supreme teenage annoyance, no, I am not depressed. I just stayed up late reading. I'm fine. She opened all the blinds on the window in my bedroom and she refused to leave until I promised I would take a shower and go outside to look at the sky. <laughs> when I was 17, I ordered fried chicken, waffles, and a chocolate milkshake from IHOP. It was really good. She stared at me for a long moment before she asked me, Molly, are you pregnant? <laughs> I almost choked on my chicken before I assured her I was in fact not pregnant. Yes, I am sure. Well, of course I can be sure, Mom. 
because I'm a virgin, okay? God! The waitress was so embarrassed, my milkshake was free. <laughs> Four years of silence had lulled me into a false sense of security. I began to assume that all of the big questions had been answered satisfactorily. 40 minutes into a three-hour drive to Fayetteville, the car was quiet. Soft rolls of pine-covered mountaintops bisected with concrete and electrical lines past my window. I could see my breath fogging up the window pane, and I leaned closer to make the patch bigger. I lifted my finger to scribble temporary graffiti. Molly, are you dating Afton? My stomach disappeared from my body. I stared at my paintbrush finger. With a sticky, numb mouth, I tried for a casual, what? <laughs> my voice broke. Swallow? Okay, but like, swallow this time? Why would you ask that? I could hear the steering wheel creak under her hands. I watched a drop of condensation bleed towards the sill, suddenly completely fascinated with its trajectory. I had a dream. A laugh huffed from my constricted diaphragm. An agony of surprise and horror compelled me to turn and face her, my sharp, small mother. My heart beat cold against my forehead, and time felt like molasses while I counted the freckles on her face, drifted over the scars under her eyes, noted with squeamish alarm the rash of grays in her dark hair. Cindy is a woman of prescience. She is uncanny with her sharp green gaze and the blazing protection of her righteous, ruthless curiosity. She once predicted her uncle's death the night before he died. In college, she shamed a ghost by throwing open a shower curtain, stomping her foot and screaming, you happy now, you dirty old perv? <laughs> Thank you, that's pretty funny. Um, the chuckling that had haunted their bathroom for four months was never heard again. <laughs> At that moment, my mother's face was an achingly familiar, beautiful blank while she waited for me to break her heart. I wasn't ready. I am never ready when she forces truth on me, from me. A dream? My voice sounded distant and slow in my ears. The screws at the edges of her mouth tightened and glass fell from her mouth, glistening, hard, broken. Are you dating her? quietly this time. I hovered over myself, gasping and reaching an incorporeal hand to cover my own mouth as I listened with horror to hear myself say, yes. It hurt to look at her, so I looked back at the window, the faintest trace of the line I had drawn still visible. Wet tires swooshed underneath us, and we held ourselves tightly together, trying not to let the space around us touch. I almost fell asleep with the tension. I was so enthralled by it. Her plaintive, why, washed over the silence and drowned it. Mind pictures of dance, kiss, soft friend, wonder, lust bombarded my senses. 
sensual syntax that defies words is cheapened by words, crowded my cerebellum. My doodling hand grasped my chest and my mouth worked like it knew that words were supposed to be coming out. Why is too big of a question? Classic parent stumper and philosopher's friend, it asks for everything and it's never satisfied. Why will make you crazy? I had driven myself half mad with why for months from the first moment that my lips touched hers. When I let it, why crushed me? Heavy and ecclesiastical into the ground, it left the carpet imprinted on my back with its weight. It stole the voices of my sister and my friends and my church, and it pinned me to the ground with them. Why I stole my peace and my wonder, my giddy curiosity and my joy and new love? And now it quashed my words until all I could say to my mother's profile was, I don't know. <clears throat> So many questions followed that to enumerate them all would be a dishonest memory. I answered with gender studies textbooks and kind of pamphlets. I mentioned subcultures and patriarchy and even sexual assault. I waxed rhapsodic about changing church views and the socioeconomic equality of a female pair. The understanding and kinship of a minority oppressed group. I wove the tapestry of pleading and convincing that wrapped around me like protection without ever touching me. As the tapestry became thicker and more insulating, I started to panic, to resent its existence. I was backing myself into a corner that I wasn't ready to be in. I was being trapped by my own reasons. I had been conditioned my whole life to answer incredibly personal, bluntly asked questions deeply inconvenient moments. <laughs> I felt like I should know the answer. I should be able to grasp and relay more clearly, more eloquently the answer to why are you gay? The rest of that two-hour conversation and the countless conversations over the following five years left me wounded. Some self-inflicted, some left by family, close friends, co-workers. They were wounds of misunderstanding, of being labeled, compartmentalized, of raging against the unfairness of being defined by one small factor of myself. Coming out was supposed to be liberating. I found it agonizing. I watched as all the other pieces of my identity, my love of language, my empathy, my obsession with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and a deep and abiding hatred for broccoli. <laughs> All of that faded behind my queerness. It took me a long time to realize that the problem with my... The problem wasn't my frantic, confused answers. It was the question itself. When you tell somebody your name or your age, they don't ask you why. You are named as your parents choose, and your age is based on the year of your birth. They may ask why when you tell them that your favorite color is lavender, or that you prefer angry girl punk to indie rock. Why implies a condition of choice. It suggests that there is a whole other way of being, and you're just wrong. Eight years later, Hindsight has granted me the wisdom that I lacked at 21. Now when I come out, and despite what you may think it is a daily event, 
I smiled serenely into the sneering face of every why. And I respond with the word that never asks for anything in return and is always satisfied. The word with which I wish I had answered my mother. Love. Thank you. Our final storyteller in this part of this series is Nicole Held Thaler. Nicole is a student at the Clinton School of Public Service and originally from Connecticut. She's lived in Arkansas for five years and considers it home now. If she's not in grad school doing her work, she's working at the diner at the corner or doing yogi headstands. Here's Nicole from the art stage. When I was a kid, I was convinced that when you were happy and when you were in love, you or your partner had to die. <laughs> I was a terribly fearful child. I specifically remember having to be picked up from a sleepover because all of the girls were watching A Walk to Remember. You know that movie with Mandy Moore who falls in love with that cool guy from high school and then she dies. I managed to make it through other Nicholas Sparks stories like The Notebook or The Last Song not without tears stained on the pages of that book. I'm tired of this narrative, and I'm tired of the fear that's associated with it. I'm tired of being scared. Last year, my father died of stage four metastatic prostate cancer. It was a progressive, vicious disease, but it did not define him or defeat him, and it did not define his love story. My dad saw my mom from across the room and said, I'm gonna marry that woman. That part the movie's got right. He swept her off her feet, whisked her away from a man on a motorcycle that didn't treat her right, and from then they were hooked and they were in it for life. Growing up, I had the cool parents. My dad could do backflips on the golf course and he taught me back handsprings in the front yard. My mom always made the best food and was and still is the kindest person that I know. And my friends always wanted to be at our house, if that says anything about the home that my parents created. One of their favorite times and one of the most embarrassing times for me was when they used to dance at weddings together. <laughs> now it's one of my sweetest memories. I also remember when I was a kid, um, we were sitting around the coffee table ordering eating takeout and my mom and my dad were arguing. So my mom stabbed the fork down on the table really, really hard, and it bounced, and it stabbed my dad in the arm. <laughs> yeah. We were concerned about infection, so they went to the hospital, and my mom, being a nurse, had to tell her friends that she accidentally stabbed my dad. <laughs> like most of their arguments, it ended in laughter and more love. Once I got to high school, it got a little bit tougher. My dad got really skinny, he started smoking cigarettes a lot, he didn't come home as often, and my parents were always arguing. His siblings even thought he might have been doing drugs, like that's how skinny he was and sad. It turns out he was $30,000 in debt, and he was gambling, addicted to scratch-offs, trying to fix his problems on his own. He finally told my mom, and it was a really treacherous time, but they made it through. I mean, I've never seen my dad cry maybe once or twice, and one of those times was when he thought he let my mom down and he wasn't good enough for her. Again, they made it through. When I was in college, my dad fell 35 feet from a roof. 
He was cleaning gutters and a swarm of bees came by and knocked him off balance. Uh, he shattered his tibia and his fibia in both of his ankles. This warrior of a man crawled to his car and was able to drive home. He made it to the driveway. He passed out in my brother's arms. He hadn't told my mom yet. He didn't want to worry her. From then on, our house became a makeshift hospital. We had a hospital bed, pick lines, all the drugs you can imagine. Their love created space for beautiful chaos. I remember my brother and I arguing over who got to sit in the wheelchair when we were watching TV, stuff like that. This was to be my dad's moment. He was healing. He even told me he thought he fell off the roof for a reason. It was like he needed a reset to be jolted awake. He would grow from this. And then he got cancer. His disease was treatable, but not curable. So his prognosis was about three to five years. We were hopeful at first. It really wasn't so bad that first year. He was able to golf and work, and my parents went out on dates. It's just that it got worse from there. Cancer fucking sucks. It takes the person that you love, and it makes them tired and sad and sleepy and pale. It robs you of family outings and peaceful evenings because the pain from chemotherapy and radiation is so unbearable. It takes the life that you thought you were gonna have, one that includes your dad walking you down the aisle and getting to meet your kids, and it crushes it with every lesion that emerges on his brain. It robs your mother of getting to grow old with your father. Despite this pain, they were never more in love. My mom never missed a chemotherapy treatment or a radiation or doctor's appointment. She was actually a little nervous to go to chemotherapy with him at times because he made so many people laugh, they thought they were gonna get kicked out. <laughs> like I said, it wasn't that bad. She was given the gift of a lifetime. She was given four months paid leave to take care of my dad. All of her coworkers donated their paid time so that she could have that time to take care of him. They believed in their love, I believed in their love. My mom always made him meals and she fought off insurance companies in order to get his medicine that she needed. It was really beautiful to witness. It's just that even love can't save someone's body when it's really, really sick. When we were hitting the three year mark, they found lesions on my dad's brain. It was starting to get hard for him to text and to string a sentence together, things like that. He was in a lot of pain and he was sleeping a lot. So one day, he was in so much pain that my mom knew she had to bring him to the hospital. He needed the type of medicine that you couldn't administer at home to help ease his pain. That week is forever seared in my memory. There was laughter, there was tears, my dad altered between sleeping and restlessness, but my mom never left his side. In the wake of his death, his love was never more bold. He fought so hard against the medicine, sometimes his will was stronger than the drugs. I was there all week, but after a while, it just became too painful. 
I had to go home. My body was breaking down. So I left my parents together, and on their last night, they were alone. My father died at 2 a.m. with my mom holding his hand. I remember that night when she came home. I was in her bed. I had woken up. I knew something was wrong. You can just tell sometimes when those things happen. And as she was dozing off, she looked at me and she said, maybe I'll see daddy in my dreams. I don't know why this had to happen in my family. I wish my dad didn't have to die. And I wish I could finish this story with a reason for why things like this happen at all. What I do know is my parents were lucky in love and I lucky to witness it, to embody it, and to be created by it. There is a hole in my chest that is never gonna be filled. My existence is forever altered. I am different. I will continue to be different. But because of their love, I am brave. I am stronger. I'm okay. I'm open to love. I welcome it. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Hilary Trudell, and this has been an episode of the Yarn Podcast. I want to take a moment to thank the many people who make the yarn possible. Thanks to South on Maine for hosting the Love Show. This episode of The Yarn was edited by the capable and wonderful Amaya Jones. Special thanks to our business manager, Sarah Brown, our operations director, Julianne Dunn, who keeps us in line and on track. Jensen Hallett, Jesse Rice, and Brad Cameron run our comms team and are fabulous at it. Emily Warnsdorfer and Ellie Wheeler not only house manage our shows, but bring their artistic talents to all the windows that our venue owners will allow painting. Mike Silverman is our stage manager. Laura Creech is our website designer and manager. Amy Hopper is our partnership manager. Stacy Cox takes our photos. And lastly, but definitely not least, the yarn would not be possible without the brave Arkansans sharing their stories with us. So special thanks to Mike, Molly, and Nicole for sharing their stories with us today. You can find more on the yarn at www.theyarnstorytelling.com. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have a podcast on the Big Rock Switchboard produced by the fabulous Whit Behringer. Lastly, we'd love to hear from you. You are our community, and we want to make sure we represent what matters to you on our stage. So send us your suggestions for upcoming shows and comments about the show that you've heard to info at theyarnstorytelling.com. Remember, at The Yarn, we believe in the power of story. Share yours with us at theyarnstorytelling.com. Everyone's got a story. What's yours?